The writings of St. Thomas Aquinas give us a wealth of doctrinal principles, teachings, and methods for a contemporary fundamental theology. The theological fruitfulness of Aquinas' approach to Revelation, in particular, comes to the fore in recent works by scholars such as Matthew Levering and Guy Mancini in their works in the area of fundamental theology. I shall look for ways in which their work can be extended by continuing an appropriation of Thomas's thought for a contemporary theology of revelation. Now, clearly, Thomas did not leave us with a disputed question or scholastic treatise entitled De Revelatione. Indeed, numerous burning questions posed by fundamental theologians today did not concern him, such as the possibility of revelation or the historicity of the Gospels. That is, Aquinas did not so much ask about how revelation is possible, but rather he chose to analyze its nature or its major characteristics. But at the same time, he has left us, his readers, with a series of insights that can help us to better account for the possibility of revelation in light of contemporary objections. For example, his theology of divine naming gives us tools that help us to overcome some of the challenges posed by modernism a century ago. The present paper is grounded in the assumption that the most effective way to retrieve Aquinas for a contemporary theology of revelation is to draw from a wide array of themes in his corpus. Thomas deliberately integrated the breadth of the patristic vision of revelation, for example, by his insistence on the centrality of Christ's mysteries or his use of the four senses of scripture. But he also added new insights to this vision in a way that responded to the challenges of his time. For example, by his way of articulating the grace-nature distinction or his theology of Christ's human knowledge. Thomas's theology of Revelation is thus at once traditional and original, impossible without the fathers, yet hardly stale, both an echo of perennial Christian wisdom on Revelation and immersed in his own time. Aquinas' contribution to the theology of Revelation is best seized when we recognize the range of doctrines in his corpus that are linked to Revelation, and when we begin to perceive the interconnection between these themes, and also when we begin to look for some of the accents that emerge from within this series of doctrinal themes. We may well accentuate the doctrines linked to Revelation differently than Thomas did, but we will surely miss something important if we overlook his way of placing the accent marks. So, for example, you could think of his theology of divine naming as a true accent, a true highlight of his theology of Revelation. 
The method just proposed seeks to avoid some of the traps uh, that 20th century Thomists did not always sidestep in their appropriation of Aquinas' theology of revelation. And thus, Reginald Garrigou Lagrange's two-volume work, De Revelazione, brilliantly engaged in the modernist controversy of the early 20th century, but its massive focus on the twin Thomistic themes of the divine teacher and prophecy seems to have left some significant lacunae in his modern Thomistic theology, such that Christ, Aquinas's theology of Christ's mysteries, which offers a compelling response to the 20th century concern for the place of salvation history in a Catholic theology of revelation, hardly receives a hearing in the Angelicum Professor's work. I say these words with a bit of trembling and fear because Father Garrigou Lagrange preached to great masses on spirituality in this very aula on Saturdays and taught for decades in this institution. He was its star theologian. I hope that the ghost of Garrigou will not be visiting me this evening in my room. This lacuna in Garrigou Lagrange's work may have facilitated the post-conciliar dismissal of scholastic theology as hopelessly hyper-metaphysical and cut off from history. However, other leading lights among 20th century Dominican Thomists, such as Ambroise Gardet, Garrigou Lagrange's master, and Yves Congar, drew more broadly from Aquinas' thought as each of them developed highly nuanced anti-modernist theologies of revelation and dogma that also took the historicity of revelation and the role of human subjectivity in intellectual discovery seriously. The immediate aim of my paper then is historical as identify some of Aquinas' most important insights on the nature of revelation. Yet like Garrigou Lagrange's work, my project is also inevitably marked by its time, as I seek to retrieve Aquinas in view of new philosophical, theological, and cultural challenges to a classical Christian theology of revelation. For example, the cultural limits of biblical writers, think of St. Paul when he speaks of the place of women in society, the historical development of biblical texts themselves. What is the relation between the various versions of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament and the Septuagint? The relation between revelation and concept-bound knowledge, including metaphysical knowledge. Think of Jean-Luc Marion's recent books on revelation and his very sharp critique of Aquinas on revelation. And so the ultimate aim of my contribution is speculative, but speculative Thomism without historical rigor probably cannot withstand the test of time. At least 20 doctrinal themes in Aquinas give us important insights on his theology of revelation. And I will briefly note these themes, and then for the rest of my presentation, consider more closely four, hopefully I will get to four, key doctrine, doctrines in Thomas that directly speak to the nature of revelation and that I think are in, in particular way fruitful for the discussion in our age in the church. 
And so first, let us consider the, the longer list of doctrinal themes linked to Revelation. This is the first page on your handout. First, sacred doctrine in general. Question one of the Summa Prima Pars, evidently. Secondly, more specifically, the four senses of scripture and issues such as the multiplicity of the literal sense. Third, eschatology, because it articulates the perfect instance of human knowledge of God and the finality of revelation. Fourth, theological epistemology. One finds this in many places, especially in a condensed form in the later articles of Prima Pars, question 12 of the Summa. Five, divine naming or analogy. And here one could also add Thomas's philosophy of language, which takes us as well to his logical works. Six, the eternal procession of the word and its consequences of for epistemology, the whole theology of the verbum cordis, the word of the heart. Seven, the visible missions of Son and Spirit. Eight, some basics of human knowledge, especially the role of phantasms in cognition. Nine, the Imago Dei, or man's capacity to receive revelation. Ten, angelology, or the angels as mediators of revelation. Eleven, the apostles as mediators of revelation. Twelve, a theology of covenant, or Thomas's response to Joachim de Fiore. 13, the nature of tradition, including its relation to scripture and the articles of faith. 14, the object and act of faith, which fill out our grasp of how man receives revelation. 15, the spirit's contemplative gifts, that is among the seven gifts of the spirit, the gifts of understanding and wisdom, perhaps also of knowledge or scientia which manifest how the believer penetrates more fully to the heart of divine teaching. 16, prophecy and its related charisms. 17, in fact, one of the charisms, miracles. 18, Christ's beatific vision and his infused human knowledge. 19, the instrumentality of Christ's humanity. And finally, 20, the mysteries of Christ. Let us note that this list is almost certainly incomplete, and we've only listed 20 themes. Indeed, Aquinas' biblical commentaries, or the first lectio of his commentary on the divine names of Dionysius the Areopagite, articulate various aspects of his notion of revelation that may or may not fit into these 20 categories. For the sake of time, I hone in now for the rest of my paper on Four topics that bring us, help bring us to the heart of Thomas's theology of Revelation. First, I will mention sacred doctrine, sacra doctrina. Second, the theology of divine naming. Third, the theology of prophecy. And fourth, the mysteries of Christ. In these four short sections, I will not undertake a general summary of the theme's relevance for theology of revelation that risks becoming superficial as an intellectual exercise. Instead, in each section, I will point out one or perhaps two sub-themes or arguments of Thomas that seem to be especially fruitful for our contemporary concerns. So I come to the first major theme, revelation as sacra doctrina or divine teaching. 
At the heart of Thomas's understanding of Revelation, there are several key themes that must be mentioned, and here surely one of those themes must be that of the divine teacher. And in this sense, Gerigou Lagrange was correct. The Summa Theologiae begins with a question on the nature of sacred doctrine, and this text undergirds the whole of the Summa. Just as importantly, it comes to the fore in Aquinas' two gospel commentaries, where Thomas develops Augustine's vision of Christ as the ultimate teacher. Perhaps even to point out, one could even point out the image of Jesus that we find in the Tertia Pars, where Thomas depicts Christ as almost wearing a Dominican habit. Huh? Jesus Christ, OP. Right? When Franciscan theologians, especially in the Middle Ages, write Christology, one has the impression that Jesus was the first Franciscan. Right? When we read Christ according to Thomas, we have the impression that he was very Dominican. The opening Summa article, question one, article one of the Prima Pars, explains man's need for revelation in view of the kind of knowledge necessary to reach Man's beatific eschatological end, a finality that in turn shapes the whole of the moral life. I turn to text one on your handout. Quote, it was necessary for human salvation that there should be a teaching revealed by God, besides the philosophical studies investigated by human reason. First, because humanity is directed to God as to an end that surpasses the grasp of reason. According to Isaiah 66, I has not seen, O God, without you, what things you have prepared for those that love you. But the end must first be known by people who are to direct their thoughts and actions to the end. Therefore, it was necessary for the well-being of humanity that certain truths that exceed human reason should be made known by divine revelation. A fun historical note at the end of the citation, he's misquoting Isaiah. He has fused Isaiah and St. Paul into one because he's quoting scripture from memory. From the start, Aquinas links revelation to the life of the whole life of virtue, which is to say that he connects his notion of the divine, the divine teacher here in question one to the whole of the second part of the Summa, as well as to the third part of the Summa, where he intended to include a whole section of questions on eschatology. But of course, a section he never reached, which is why we have to reconstruct his eschatology through his biblical commentaries, his sentences commentary, the Summa Contra Gentiles, etc. Given, one, the lengthy section in the Tertia Pars on the mysteries of Christ, where the Lord teaches by word and deed, and two, the question in the Tertia Pars specifically dedicated to Christ as teacher, question 42, we are entirely justified in seeing an intimate connection between the opening question of the Summa on Sacra Doctrina, or revelation as divine teaching, the whole of Thomas's moral theology, and the heart of his Christology. In fact, Father um, Gadgetan Cuddy a few months ago defended his dissertation in Freiburg uh, on uh, basically this very topic. Christ the teacher, by all that he spoke, did, and suffered, illumined his disciples on their eschatological end and the Christ-like virtues needed to obtain that end. Revelation is divine teaching, 
and Thomas's vision thereof can only be grasped in light of the whole of the Summa, but also only in light of the biblical commentaries, especially the gospel commentaries. The link with eschatology also emerges in the subsequent Summa article, where Thomas identifies the sacred teaching as the highest form of learning or scientia. In other words, as an organized body of knowledge that rests on certain fundamental principles which allow the mind to progress towards new insights about God, creation, and the economy of salvation. Now, whereas the natural human disciplines, such as metaphysics or geometry, proceed from the first principles accessible to any human being, the sacred science advances on the foundation of first principles available only by the light of faith. The sacred discipline of the pilgrim depends on another discipline, somewhat as music relies on arithmetic. We see this in text two. Quote, and it is in this way that holy teaching is scientia, because it proceeds from premises established by the light of a higher scientia, namely the scientia of God and the blessed. End of the quote. Here, Aquinas makes several key claims. First, revelation imparts God's teaching in a mode analogous to natural human disciplines, which implies a unified, harmonious order in the saving economy, or an essential link between God's teaching in the order of creation and his gratuitous teaching through the prophets and Christ. Second, revelation is a teaching received by trust in a teacher, by placing one's trust in a teacher. And this, in turn, is made possible by the gift of faith. Here, today's Thomists can take their master's work further by working on the notion of knowledge by testimony, a crucial project that has been beautifully begun or advanced by Mats Wahlberg. Third, the, tr the trust that faith enables is neither blind nor a shutting down of reason, for it makes possible rational reflection on the content of revelation, as is the case in the other subalternated sciences. Thomas makes this point somewhat explicit in Article 8 of the first question. This is text 3 on the handout. Quote, as other scientiae do not argue in proof of their premises, but argue from the premises to demonstrate other truths in these scientiae, so too this teaching does not argue in proof of its premises, which are the articles of faith, but rather from them it goes on to prove something else. End of the quote. Now, of course, Thomas also firmly holds that the mysteries of faith, the articuli fidei, the very key core summary of the great revealed doctrines can be shown to be in harmony with reason, that is shown to be not against, as not against reason. My fourth point regarding uh, here text number two, I use text three to make my third point on text number two, my fourth and last point to close this section, revelation is a participation in the beatific knowledge enjoyed by the saints. It is a foretaste of the eschatological face-to-face -face vision of God, which points to revelation as God's self-manifestation 
and offer of communion with human beings, a very common critique of Thomistic theologies of Revelation, starting with and continuing after Vatican II, is that we finally move beyond scholasticism to a notion of God's self-manifestation. I think it's in question one, article eight. I think it's very clear. I come to section two of my four themes, divine naming and revelation. Thomas's doctrine of analogy has attracted immense attention from philosophers and theologians in recent decades. We have cut down many forests to publish the books and articles on analogy, and rightly so. I would argue that question 13 of the Prima Pars primarily concerns the power and limits of biblical and theological language about God. This is not, first of all, a philosophical text, although it is filled with philosophical insights. Question 13 offers a plethora of ideas related to a doctrine of revelation. And so here one has to choose. I am like a child in a candy store, and I have to choose which candy my mother will buy for me. And so I will choose two. The triplex via, the threefold way of affirmation, eminence, and negation, and the priority of the divine name, he who is. The first article of question 13 presents the triplex via as an essential step in any divine predication. Thomas's focus is on human language about God, but the principles he articulates also pertain to the structure of human knowledge and the structure of things in relation to God. Huh? Think It's a thought I cannot articulate here for the sake of time, but it's been discussed, I think, in the literature. Things can be named insofar as they can be known, and the way we name is rooted in our way of knowing. The, our way of knowing is rooted in the mode of being that belongs to creatures, which, of course, is very different from God's uh, mode of being. The pilgrim's direct knowledge in this life, the pilgrim's direct knowledge always concerns creatures and their composite limited mode of being. And our na language naturally reflects this. That's Thomas's beginning argument. He then continues his argument in the following way in text number four. Quote, it was shown above that in this life God cannot be seen by us through his essence, but he is known by us from creatures by relation of the principle, by mode of excellence and remotion. Therefore, he can thus be named by us from creatures. Nevertheless, not thus that the name signifying him expresses the divine essence insofar as it is, end of the quote. As in question 12, where he's worked out a theological epistemology, here, too, we find a balance between apophatism and cataphatism, between a constant awareness of the infinite mystery of God and an insistence that God's perfections can truly be accessed by our minds through his natural and supernatural effects. The creating and saving cause is a principle, a principium, whose mode of possessing the various perfections, such as goodness and wisdom, exceeds anything found in creatures. And that calls for a remotio, a separating, a purification of all creaturely limitations in speech about God. One implication of this principle is that we cannot arrive at a single perfect, satisfying divine name in this life, and this points to the necessity of a multiplicity of divine names. 
The real similitude between the divine cause and God's effects makes divine naming possible, while the metaphysical distance between them limits the epiphanic power of each name so that human beings need a plethora of divine names in order to know God well. I come to my second sub-theme of this first major section. Article 11 identifies qui est, he who is, as the most proper divine name due to its indeterminacy, which again points to the apophatic element in Thomas's thought. The same text explains the priority of this name by appeal to God's simplicity, especially the identity of the divine esse and essentia. Interestingly, Thomas considers the meaning of this name both accessible to reason, if we follow through on his mode of arguing, argumentation in question four of the Prima Pars, and he considers it as one of the high points of God's, we might say, self-revelation in the Old Covenant, Exodus 3. A doctrine of God centered on his pure actuality supports the apophatic strain in Thomas, but it also helps to explain his abiding, and I would say insistent, emphasis on the role of cataphatism, on the cataphatic element. This last point, that there is a slight inclination towards cataphatism more than apophatism in Thomas, I realize that many will disagree with me, but I'm extremely stubborn on this and convinced by it. This last point becomes clear when we consider Aquinas' theology of divine naming in relation to his Neoplatonic sources, especially Proclus and Dionysus, from whom Thomas draws heavily, all the while taking distance from them. Here it's essential to read the commentaries on the Liber de Causes and the De Divinis Nubinibus. For the Areopagite and his pagan master Proclus, probably his teacher, God's highest name is the One, a doctrine that ultimately calls for the surpassing of the act of naming as the contemplative passes into silence where the mind goes beyond the multiplicity of names and concept-bound thought, beyond concept-bound thought to a higher imaging of God as one. The mind images God's unity in this way. Thomas instead opts for the priority of God as being, as actus, where divine simplicity is ultimately understood as a perfect union of esse and essentia. Here, the pure actuality of God's being is best approached through the creaturely imitations of his being. And these inevitably involve, this inevitably involves pondering the positive attributes of creatures as effects of God. Positive attributes of creatures. Think of the moral way of sharing his life with his disciples. A theology centered on a divine actuality is more at ease with the multiplicity of divine names and less pressed to pass beyond the act of naming God, naming him biblically into noetic silence. Furthermore, the multiplicity of creatures is not so much a falling away from pure divine unity as a reflection of trin Trinitarian multiplicity. Three persons, not one. Much of this, not all of it, but some of it remains a bit implicit in Aquinas, yet the consequences of this doctrine of God for his theology of revelation would seem to be far-reaching. 
Thomas does not see our embodied and temporal mode of knowing and thus speaking about God as a problem to be overcome because man is essentially a soul-body composite who receives revelation by the mode of being proper to him. Finally, it should be clear that the triplex via, affirmation, remotion, and eminence pertains to far more than the names of God's attributes that pertain to his single divine nature. This theology of the triplex via pertains just as much to Trinitarian theology, to angiology, and beyond. I will have to skip one of my four sections. I knew that this was going to happen. It was inevitable. I will pass on to section, the last section, the mysteries of Christ and Revelation. I have a little section on prophecy. I've written an article uh, entitled God Speaks at a for a colloquium that happened here at the Alamino next door in the Angelicum about five years ago where I touch on some of the elements which I then further develop here. But for, to, to leave a little bit of time for discussion, I will move on to the mysteries of Christ and Revelation, section 4. A crucial development in the works of the late Aquinas is a fuller understanding of Christ as prophet, which becomes yet another element in his overall theology of Christ's mysteries. Thomas's theology of Revelation reaches a crescendo in the tertia pars, especially in questions 27 through 59, as he explores the mysteries of the Savior. Aquinas weaves together various doctrinal elements explored earlier in the Summa as he forges a richer doctrinal synthesis. Christ as master of sacred doctrine, the ultimate pedagogue who respects the properly human way of learning. The son who illumines his disciples by the deeds that stand at the heart of his visible mission, especially the miracles that constitute epiphanic signs. Aquinas was hardly the first medieval theologian to give considerable attention to Christ's mysteries. However, as my dear neighbor, Father Jean-Pierre Torel has shown, Thomas's exploration of those mysteries in his late Summa is original in a few ways. First, he was the first medieval thinker to make Christ's mysteries an integral part of his systematic Christology, of a Summa. His organized presentation of Christ in the Summa advances very much on the basis of a theological exegesis of the Gospels, on the foundation of the Catena Aurea, the golden chain, the foundation of his commentaries, especially on Matthew and John. Second, Thomas systematically analyzed each of the great mysteries in a single unified corpus of questions in the Tertia Pars, and this allowed him to grasp, to better grasp their interrelation so that the mysteries illumine each other more fully. Third, as is well known, Thomas recovered and developed a Greek patristic doctrine of the saving efficacy of Christ's deeds. Above all, by drawing upon Cyril of Alexandria and John Damascene. Aquinas thus tightened the link between the Trinity's revelatory and saving actions, and thus can show more easily how God saves us by revealing and reveals by saving. And there's a sacramental nature to Christ's mysteries. 
It's the very basis of sacramentality for the church and her sacraments. The length of the analysis of the mysteries in the Summa allowed Thomas to flesh out and apply this principle to the details of the gospel narrative, the principle that God saves by revealing and reveals by saving. And so revelation takes on that sacramental character, which is exactly what the fathers of the church intended as they contemplated as well Christ's words and deeds, precisely qua mysteries. For his readers today, Aquinas' mature Christology opens his theology of revelation to a closer synthesis with work being done on the sacramentality of the word. Aquinas' presentation of Christ's mysteries works on the basis of an important medieval axiom that he derived from the writings of the fathers. Omnis Christi actio nostra est instructio. All of Christ's action is for our instruction. By this phrase, Thomas highlights the theme of revelation by Christ's human deeds. For example, the deeds enrich Christ's moral exemplarity. Yet Aquinas also seems, sees them as having a more extensive function. In the Gospels, words and deeds are intertwined in such a way that the deeds alone remain insufficient. But they become epiphanic when linked to Christ's words and placed in the context of the gospel narrative. Here, Gimancini has done some wonderful work, especially in his amazing handbook of fundamental theology published about three years ago. And before Mancini, um, with, uh, the more recent writing uh, that I mentioned, there is Richard Schenk's article from the 1990s, which I quote in text six, concerning Christ's revelatory deeds. This is what Father Schenk, my mentor, says. First of all, Thomas sees the visible deeds of Christ as being intended to convey a special meaning. Thus, their doing so is not merely accidental or occasional. Secondly, it is not evident from the records of the deeds alone exactly what is the point of instruction. Many deeds are not meant as literal examples. Others are, are such as the periodic withdrawal of the preacher from contact with his hearers. You see, Jesus Christ, O.P., one can interpret the meaning of the visible deeds only in the larger context. Thirdly, this larger context is more adequately understood through the message of Jesus than through his deeds. End of the quote. Christ's words, therefore, have prior priority in his mission of perfecting revelation, of bringing revelation to completion, but within a broader whole where they are consistently uttered in relation to deeds. And of course, here one thinks of Vatican II's constitution, Dei Verbum. Aquinas' approach to Christ's words and deeds applies the theological principles already articulated in Prima Pater's question 43, article 7, namely that God's revelatory act adapts. It adapts to the human mode of knowing and discovery. And this precisely then moves toward the concern of the fathers of Vatican II. The heart of revelation occurs in a particular mode, a mode not limited to a list of quasi-dogmatic propositions, such as the word made flesh. I say quasi-dogmatic because it precedes dogma. Rather, revelation also occurs in the mode of God saving deeds in time, even in the small details of history. Thomas's theology fuses a metaphysical principle with a biblical meditation grounded in faith. Christ's deeds are reliably revelatory because action follows being 
a being that consists of his divine nature and his holy humanity hypostatically joined to that uncreated nature. That is a principle that grounds Thomas's reading of the mysteries. With the help of Father Thomas Joseph White, we might add that this axiom's application in turn presupposes Christ's beatific vision to ensure that each of Jesus's human deeds indeed are, remain and are always trans, be always transparent to the Father's will, which he knows in the face-to-face -face vision that he enjoys even in his pilgrim state. Christ's earthly deeds thus reach an eminent degree of luminosity, his free human acts unfolding within a providential design wherein God acts in every creaturely act, even in the minor circumstances surrounding our deeds, continually echo the Father's face and his saving will for mankind. I come to my conclusion. The three brief analyses of Revelation Aquinas just proposed give us a first glimpse of a very broad theological canvas, one that deserves in-depth analysis, a work that should also call for, that also calls for an attentive reading of Thomas's biblical commentaries. Aquinas's theology of Revelation can facilitate a fuller reception of Vatican's do, Vatican II's Dei Verbum in the academy and in the church's pastoral life. His doctrine of Revelation articulates a series of philosophical and theological principles that can be applied fruitfully to new questions about the nature of Revelation, about biblical inspiration and inerrancy. The synthetic power of his theology pushes us to better integrate our theology of Revelation with other theological subdisciplines and themes, such as Trinitarian theology, eschatology, the theology of grace, the theology of creation. And finally, the broadness of Aquinas's theological canvas might help us to avoid too narrow a view of what is, in fact, an inexhaustible mystery. I thank you for your attention.